So has Q posted? Uh, yeah, Q posted a few hours after we went live. So we didn't waste any time? No, he was immediately, I, I couldn't even see the website and he's already posting. Due to some technical difficulties, it was basically impossible for users to post on Acoon during its first few days back online. Yet, somehow, Q managed to. He could tell the website's not running well, but he still went out of his way to make posts, probably to calm everybody or whatever he's doing. I, I don't know, I don't, I'm not Q, I don't know who Q is, so. No idea. I don't even, I barely even follow it, honestly. That's a strange character named Ron Watkins talking to filmmaker Colin Hoback in the recently released six-part HBO documentary, Q, Into the Storm. The film is a wild voyage through the internet underworld where the mysteriously named Q, supposedly an intelligence community insider, has posted his cryptic messages about a cabal of Satan worshippers and pedophiles who are secretly running the U.S. government. Q's postings gave rise to a bizarre conspiracy theory that captured the imagination of millions of Americans, creeping its way into Republican Party politics and fueling the passions that led to the January 6th insurrection. Q's droppings have also inspired a national guessing game about who this alleged intelligence insider really is, prompting Hoback to spend three years traveling all over the world in a relentless quest to discover his or her identity. He ultimately suggests he's figured it out, pointing the finger at Ron Watkins himself, the longtime administrator of the message board that Q made its online home. Has Hoback solved the riddle of Q, or is this, as Ron Watkins insists, an elaborate deflection? We'll talk to Hoback on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So I got to say, I was uh, initially a bit skeptical about this HBO doc uh, on Q. I watched the first couple of episodes and, you know, he was spending all this time with these wackadoodles like Ron Watkins and his father, Jim, and uh, their former associate uh, with whom they've uh, parted, Frederick Brennan. Um, But, you know, the more I watched, the more it drew me in uh, into, you know, just this wild world uh, and the idea that even if Ron Watkins is not Q, and we're going to talk to Colin Hoback about that, the idea that, you know, these internet hucksters, you know, could have somehow manipulated this entire conspiracy theory and set the whole, you know, millions of Americans off into believing this nonsense, affecting our politics is such a, a such a strange, but apparently real story. Yeah. I, I, you know, I had the same initial reaction as you, and I kind of found myself wondering, well, why all the focus uh, on these, you know, weirdos, uh, you know, (laughs) on the internet? 
we should be focusing more on the people who've gone down these rabbit holes on the dis- on, on how it's destroyed lives and um, in, you know infected our politics. But there is a important reason to focus on them because we're living in an age where you know a kind of unconventional information warfare where you know a bunch of people who have access to the internet can have this kind of destructive impact on our world and um it's it's really um important i mean there is a sense in which you know the, the way the movie is done is a it's a kind of cat and mouse investigation you know you sort of get caught up in the you know, that aspect of it. Um, but if you step back, and that's why when you see this film, the very end of it is extremely powerful because you're sort of detached watching the filmmaker trying to investigate who these people are and who the real Q is and unmask them. But at the end, you really see how powerful the consequences of, of all of this really are. Yeah, I, we, we, the the film spends uh, the, the documentary most of his time. We're going from the Philippines to Japan to South Africa, and then all of a sudden it comes home onto the steps of the United States Capitol all at once. And it, that last episode was definitely a sort of a little bit of a of a PTSD moment for anyone who kind of watched what was going on on January sixth. Right, I, I totally agree. And you know what's so striking about it is. You know, Mike, you put it well in the intro, the, the, the internet underworld, and it's all virtual. And Netherworld, seeing... I think I said. <laughs> I think you said underworld, actually, but that's okay. I'm going to call it the internet underworld. Uh, okay. You know, you're seeing all this, you know, code flickering on screens, you know, and it's all kind of, you know, virtual and, and, and sort of remote, you know, and then all of a sudden January 6th is so physical. You know, it's so real. Um, And they start showing this footage of papers uh, and, you know, strewn all over Nancy Pelosi's office and furniture knocked over. And it really had a really powerful impact on me. So it's a a pretty strong uh, movie. So far, 34 of the people who've been indicted for taking part in the January 6th conspiracy are QAnon adherents, more than, you know, affiliated with any other group among the amongst yeah. the people who've been indicted. There's evidence that like a very substantial portion of the American population believes in some element of QAnon, even if they don't completely believe that the federal government is run by a group of I suppose baby eating satanic pedophiles, which is the right. uh, the core belief, I suppose, of QAnon. But QAnon is also a worldview of people who have kind of rejected reason, objectivity, science. And it all started with these three kind of characters in the Philippines and Japan. If they managed to do it to America. (laughs) Yeah. God knows what the Chinese and the Russians could do if they really wanted (laughs) to get serious. But before we get to the world of Q, I want to take a brief detour to pick up on a story uh, we're following very closely this week. Uh, Victoria, you mentioned January 6th. Do you remember who was the first member of Congress to get up on the House floor and suggest that the real perpetrators of January 6th was actually Antifa leftists and not the actual uh, Trumpistas who did the deed. I remember it well. It was a member of Congress from Florida named Matt Gates. 
Exactly. And he has been much in the news this week, as we um, learned, uh, as first predicted, by the way, uh, by our skullduggery guest earlier in the week, Dave Arenberg, the state attorney of uh, Palm Beach, that um, this guy, Joel Greenberg, the uh, tax collector of Seminole County, facing, I think, what, 33 counts indictment uh, by the feds, including sex trafficking, was going to cut a plea and flip. And it looks like, based on what his lawyer said on the courthouse steps after a hearing on Thursday, that we could well be seeing a plea from Greenberg very soon and that Gates may have reason to be very worried. Not only that, but today the House Ethics Committee uh, launched an investigation into Matt Gates, And in addition, there seems to be a constant drip drip of new and more salacious plus potentially uh, criminal information coming out against Matt Gates's activities regarding underage girls. And uh, I would say that uh, it, uh, there was actually a terrific uh, piece in in the Daily Beast, um, a great piece of kind of enterprising reporting uh, where they were able to see uh, his um, Venmo payments, which he sent to Joel Greenberg, $900. And then allegedly, uh, Joel Greenberg, um, immediately after receiving the $900 on Venmo, uh, sent uh, a total of $900 to, I think, three young women which seem to be payments uh, f- uh, for for something. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and look, the irony here is just so rich. I think I mentioned this the other day, which is that what was the theme of the QAnon crowd all along for the last several years about this cabal of sex traffickers? And who's the first high profile alleged sex trafficker to come under scrutiny from the Justice Department, but uh, none other than Matt? Gates, uh, the the Trumpista himself. Um, We've got a clip of that uh, very funny moment from Saturday Night Live the other night during Weekend Update. Eric, you want to play that? Here's the craziest part of this story to me. A sitting congressman is being accused of child trafficking, and the QAnon people are suddenly like, nah, I need more evidence. (laughs) That was your whole thing. I mean, come on. Matt Gates's girlfriend. She was allegedly 17. The 17th letter is Q. It all adds up. <laughs> what? Yes. what are you waiting for? The storm is finally here, and QAnon is like, you can't believe everything you read on the internet. Uh, there was a lot of that 17th letter stuff in the uh, in the HBO doc. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. <laughs> just sit there. I'll just do the right, show yeah. myself. I'm Come not on. Sure, sure where we go from this. It's, it's really. It's, I mean, it's, yes, it's, yes, there was. Yes, yes there was. <laughs> yes. Well, it 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 certainly all adds up. Um, all right. One other uh, item in the news we should uh, touch on because we were talking about it the other day, and that is the um, MLB. Uh, moving the all-star game out of Georgia in protest of the from the Georgia voting law. And it looks like that's getting quite a bit of pushback, not just from Republicans, but from Democrats in Georgia themselves. Uh, the idea that as a result of this, uh, up to $100 million in 
potential business for the Atlanta community uh, is going to get yanked out of the state, disproportionately affecting many of the same people that these uh, Democrats say they are protecting. And so it's pretty interesting to see Stacey Abrams, uh, John Ossoff, and Raphael Warnock all expressing some concerns about what MLB has done. Yeah, no question. I mean, this it really does you know, just in pure political terms, it hands uh, a battering ram over to uh, the Republicans. Uh, and you know, Stacey Abrams and Warnock and Ossoff understand that. You know, it, it allows them to say that, you know, Democrats care more about, I think one of them said, the, you know, the national woke movement than they do about Georgians and, and jobs. Um, and, you know, and that's where the rubber meets the road in politics often is jobs. So, they are caught between an issue that they obviously care a lot about and is hugely important, you know, which is access to voting, you know, the sort of national movement uh, to, to do something about it. And it's it's a it's a problem. It's a problem for them. How big a problem is is hard to know. But you could see all of them squirming a bit uh, and feeling pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. But but isn't it to me, how amazing the Republicans have managed to change the narrative on this and to divert attention to whether or not MLB plays a game in Georgia one night out of 365 or the next five years, rather than actually confronting and being honest about the law that they passed, which to be sure wasn't a hundred percent awful, but which vast swaths of it actually deprived or attempts to deprive African-American voters an equal opportunity to cast their ballots in Georgia. So it's a it's a brilliant diversion tactic on the part of the Republican leadership of Georgia to pay, pay no attention to this awful bill that we passed, pay more attention to whether or not MLB shows up here one night. Well, look, when the I, I'm glad you concede this was not as awful as some of the rhetoric has suggested. That's something I've been saying all along. But when the president of the United States calls this Jim Crow on steroids, you know, what do you expect? People are going to react to that. And when that's the hyperbolic rhetoric that surrounds the debate about these laws, it makes it really hard for people to make rational decisions. And I think there's a lot of concern about a sort of a slippery slope. I mean, you know, it doesn't necessarily end uh, with uh, Major League Baseball. You know, there are a lot of studios and production companies who uh, film movies in Georgia. That's a huge business there. And it's not just a bunch of Hollywood actors coming in. Those aren't the real jobs. The jobs are the people who actually work on the you – know, who are local hires um, and often people of color, people who, you know, are going to be hurt by some of these restrictive voting laws who may then be hurt um, uh, by losing jobs. So it, it's it's a it's it's a difficult situation that that I think Democrats are going to have to navigate carefully um, as they are. But um, we've got a lot to talk about on another front, the QAnon front. So let's get to it. Okay, we now have with us uh, Cullen Hoback, the director of the remarkable HBO series Q Into the Storm. Cullen, welcome to Skullduggery. Uh, hey, yeah, great to great to be here. 
So uh, quite a journey you embarked on back in 2018, if I um, was watching carefully enough, which is uh, a long time ago, a long time you spent on this. And I guess I just want to start out by asking what possessed you three years ago to want to devote years of your life to figuring out who Q was? Uh, I, I just must have a very uh, self-destructive personality. That's the, uh, <laughs> you know, um, three, no, really uh, a few years back. Um, you know, Q, I, I was I was aware of it in, in a peripheral sense. Um, I'd seen some posts uh, about it on Reddit, um, but it didn't really jump out to me until Reddit banned the Great Awakening subreddit. Um, you know, and I had a background in digital rights. I, I focused for much of the last decade on uh, digital privacy issues. And so it just made me wonder if the banning of talk of Q or this, this subreddit uh, might be a sign of things to come and whether or not banning Q might actually have the opposite of its intended effect. You know, a sort of, a sort of Streisand effect that draws people into things which are taboo or gives, um, you know, a forbidden fruit, uh, the veneer of intellectualism, I guess. So um, that's what piqued my interest originally. Uh, but then also uh, I was, of course, curious about uh, who was behind this this growing global movement. And I thought if I could uncover whoever was Q, that it might bring this whole thing to a conclusion. So... The um, there's a lot to ask you about here, and you know, of course, your finale in which you do suggest you have unmasked Q. We'll get to that in a moment. But just as a um, you know, as a journalist who's worked on big projects, I, I I have to say you were flying all over the world, sometimes at the drop of a hat. For instance, when uh, uh, Fred Brennan says he needs you in Manila right away and you hop on the plane, how are you? Who was funding this uh, obviously rather rich, expensive journey that you were on? So I don't I don't know that people really even believe me when I tell them uh, how little we made this project for uh, originally. You know, HBO didn't come on until September of 2020 when I was basically done filming. So, you know, every step of the way was really just credit cards, uh, personal loans. Uh, yeah, so it was all self-funded um, with, with the exception of a grant that came through from IDA. It was a small grant, the uh, International Documentary Association, um, when we really needed it uh, in, in late 2019. So, you know, it, it was kind of like film, film, film. And if we ran out of money, come up with some way to get more money. <laughs> like, no joke. I think we had... $60,000 in credit card debt at a certain point. Actually, I guess I should give a, a shout out to Scott's Cheap Flights because I, I use their services constantly to find when there were airfares, E-R-R-O-R, -R -R, which is uh, like a mistake fare, which is how I got to South Africa. So, you know, part, so a lot of my travel was uh, was dependent on um, when there were, uh, yeah, when there were discount prices in, in airfare. <laughs> Well, I was impressed. Some of us who have to go to editors to get approval for trips, uh, and, you know, or uh, uh, I envied your um, ability to just hop on a plane and go anywhere in the world in pursuit of this. I mean, I guess that was the good fortune in general of working on this independently is that, uh, you know, I didn't have to ask anyone. I just kind of did it. Um, and that that whether it was travel or just embarking on this whole thing to begin with. I mean, we, we took about three weeks to, to research, you know, possible suspects um, for who might be behind Q, um, really wrap our heads around the whole world. Um, you know, and then I, I really honed in my focus on 8chan, 
not because they thought that they were behind Q at the time, but because they were the site where Q was hosted. Um, and I thought, if anybody knows who's behind Q, it would be those with the technical data. You know, Colin, I actually wanted to ask you about that. This, this is a, a documentary that, uh, in a way, is about subcultures, actually multiple subcultures that kind of overlap in a way. So you have the, the subculture of, you know, the, the sort of internet, uh, the message boards, then you have the QAnon subculture, uh, and then you have the political subculture that overlapped with QAnon and with the digital types. But talk a little bit about that internet subculture and what you knew about it going into that world and what you learned about it. So uh, Chan culture, 4chan, 8chan, um, uh, Reddit is, is, is a Chan kind of, uh, it's just more of like a mainstream, a mainstream version. Um, you know, these have been around for decades. They're, they're kind of old school forums. Um, they're intentionally difficult to use. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of gatekeeping exercises that, uh, those on the chans uh, em- em- employ to kind of keep normies out. You know, I had never been a chan user before I started this project. I, I was a Reddit user, but I'd never been on 4chan, never been on 8chan. So, uh, you know, for me, um, I-, I think it's actually helpful because I was able to take the audience on the same journey that I went through, uh, trying to unpack how these worlds worked, what the mechanics of them are, and, 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 and try to understand the sensibilities of those who are drawn to the chans. You know, so it was it was kind of interesting with with Q because usually you would have personalities of you know people who go to the chance to as an outlet. Some of them, some of them are uh, being provocative. Um, I mean, in Japan, for instance, chans are much more popular. We find actually, I think that trans are more popular in countries that are, are repressive, um, and people then go to the chans, which are these anonymous forums where you can say virtually anything you want as a kind of outlet. So you see some of the most toxic. Uh, memes and and language and um, it's a rough place to be <laughs> in general and and they like it that way. So for Q to be there, um, I think most QAnons had no idea that that was the case. You know, most QAnons didn't actually interface with HN. They would they would have uh, Q kind of um, analyzed for them by QTubers and others who were just analyzing the drops or would go to HN um, in order to in order to see the latest thing that Q said. Um, so I think one of the things the series does is it, is it shows those who've been following Q, hey, this is really where, you know, this is Q's home. <laughs> um, and so you had this weird intersection between some, you know, boomers and, uh, you know, heavy Chan users who don't necessarily see eye to eye. And you could actually see that playing out on HN. And mind you, HN is made up of a bunch of different image boards or forums and that means that you know, there are hundreds of different topics that are discussed. So you could have one forum that's all devoted to QAnon. You could have another forum that's devoted to Christianity. And you could have another forum that's devoted to white supremacy, which was actually the most popular forum at the time called Poll. I mean, they wouldn't say it was just devoted to white supremacy. They would say that it's like devoted to political incorrectness and and um, you know, sort of testing the limits of free speech and conspiracy theory research. But it is laden with white supremacy imagery. So Q himself, I suppose it's a himself, hasn't posted since December 8th. And the man who you posit is Q, and he seems to sort of confess at the end of your documentary is Q. Ron Watkins has been has been deplatformed from Twitter and a few other sources. Now that we know who Q is, 
maybe. Um, and now that Q is silent, does it matter that we know who Q was? What have we What have we learned from this journey of discovering who Q was? Well, Q's power is derived from anonymity. Um, you know, and there are a lot of QAnons along the way would tell me, oh, it doesn't matter who Q is. But deep down, I think they all really wanted to know. And when you take the mask off of some off of the persona of Q, you're suddenly left with the person and you're left with all of the baggage of that person and the motives of that person. And suddenly you're able to see much more clearly um, what was really going on behind the scenes. You know, it's really similar, I think, to The Wizard of Oz. You know, a Q yeah. is like this big spectacle thing, you know, pay no attention to Ron Watkins behind the curtain, right? Yeah. And when you, when, you, when you see that, I think that uh, the antiseptic of sunlight isn't all that flattering. Did Ron Watkins create a roadmap or teach future Qs how to spin new conspiracy theories, how to gain new adherents? Or, or is it just sort of like this, is it going to have been a fever dream that we all lived through over over the last four or five years with Q, and and now everything will kind of revert back to a different kind of diffuse world of conspiracy theorists. Mm. I think the story is still being written, right? And what the series does is it treats Q like a magic trick, and it reveals the magic trick. So I think for those who watch the series, they, they go, oh, that's what was happening. And so that same magic trick for those who watch the series can't really work again. So while it's possible for someone to emulate uh, the tactics of Q, um, it's less likely that those exact same tactics will work, assuming a lot of people have seen the show. You know, but but we, we will still be left with the echoes of Q, certainly. Uh, it will either be absorbed more into the main line of the GOP, it, it could splinter off into different factions. You know, there, there are a lot of different uh, forms that it can that it can take moving forward, but you know, one of the things that I, I've heard actually in the last two days, and, and you know, the series just finished the final episode only five days ago, but I've heard actually from those who um, had estranged relationships with family members who uh, were really into QAnon that they're actually communicating again and that they have a foundation for communicating with those family members. You know, it's it's a, it's a process. I don't think it's going to happen overnight, but uh, that was something that made me really optimistic. Uh, with, with, you know, I think for the family members, they were looking at this and going, oh, now I actually understand. Now I actually understand this thing that, that my loved one was super into. Um, and, but also they, they see it for exactly what it is. And so they're able to talk with them about it. And, you know, mileage may vary. But. Yeah. Hey, Colin, for the, for the benefit of our listeners who have not seen the series, step back and and just um, introduce them to, I guess, the three main protagonists in this uh, documentary series, uh, uh, Jim and Ron Watkins uh, and uh, Frederick Brennan. Sure. So, uh, so, you know, I first reached out to the creator of 8chan back in 2018. His name is Frederick Brennan. Uh, he has brittle bone disease. You might have seen him on the news at various points along the way. He was the most public facing of the three at the time. And none of them were like household names at that point. No one knew who Jim or Ron Watkins really were, or, or really even who Fred Brennan was. Um, so I reached out to Fred. We talked for a while. He said, you know, Colin, the reason I talked to you is because you trolled Mark Zuckerberg in your previous film. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so that's why Fred talked to me. And he said, look, uh, as long as um, 
you're considering coming out to the Philippines, maybe you should talk to Jim and Ron Watkins. And this is the father-son duo who now own and operate 8chan, um, or own and operate 8chan at the time. It's now called 8kun. We kind of cover that transformation uh, in the series itself. So you know, it's it's kind of these three characters and the, the, the tension between these three characters that uh, end up becoming the focus of the series as my as my investigation narrows. And the first time that I went to the Philippines, I wasn't aware that there was this brewing rivalry between Fred and Jim and Ron Watkins. You know, that became apparent in the months that followed. It's interesting because I, I kind of met them at the, at, at the while they were still on good terms. And then you watch uh, their relationship completely devolve over the course of the series to the point of trying to put each other in prison on a kind of global scale. <laughs> and Fred's journey to bring down the Watkinses, uh, the father-son duo who own and operate HN, really merges with uh, his journey to destroy Q at a certain point. You know, HN and Q are, are, are basically bound together. You know, and meanwhile, I, I, I'm there to kind of trying to suss out uh, what exactly all of their level of involvement is in Q. And Fred, you know, he he kind of leaned into the Q narrative originally. He even he even drafted a Q proof. He pretended like this giant blue Q magically appeared in his apartment in Manila one day. Um, you know, so in the beginning, I thought, you know, maybe maybe Fred, who had created H Chan, um, could be behind Q. Maybe they were all working together. Um, you know, and that that's one of those things that we unpack in in this in the series i mean you know my reaction uh watching it you know my first blush was what a bunch of oddballs um you're spending your time with <laughs> but let's let's go to the unmasking because that has this is the finale of this six-part series. It's obviously created a bit of controversy, and you've gotten some pushback on it. We have a clip of what you are saying is the, you know, is the aha moment, uh, the gotcha, where Ron Watkins, the son of Jim Watkins, um, confesses, maybe. So let's play it and then talk about it. Sure. In our final conversation, perhaps wanting the credit, he admitted something shocking. Ron hadn't just been participating in Q research. It sounded like he was leading it. Yeah, so thinking back on it, like uh, it's basically, it was basically three years of intelligence training, teaching normies how to do intelligence work. It's basically what I was doing anonymously before, but never as Q. See that smile? Ron had slipped up. He knew it, and I knew it. And after three tireless years of cat and mouse, well... <laughs> never, never as cute, I promise. <laughs> never as cute. Because okay. I am not cute. <clears throat> It never was. Oh, man. I, I mean, is that a confession that Ron, who's the administrator of 8 uh, is actually writing the Q posts or was writing the Q posts on his own? I mean, I had, uh, 
in all the years that I had been filming on and off with, with Ron Watkins, there were a number of things he had said here, which he had hidden from me before. And when he said this, I just, after letting the oxygen out and uh, cause I, my, my mind was unraveling after he, he uh, said that I, I turned to the camera person. I just mouthed like, he just admitted he's cute. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, you, you hear what he says in, in that moment. And I think, he, I think you have to, you have to have a foundation of what digging is and leading the digs and, and having been so immersed in, in um, conspiracy theories for, for 10 years really means. Um, but, but it, it meant that he had been hiding his, um, uh, his interest in in Q, his uh, that he was shepherding the theories that were generated on the chans, um, and uh, and and I think over the years you you just learn someone's tells right. You learn when they're lying, right? Um, right. Uh, you know whether it's blinking. I mean, it, when, if you look at how he answers, anytime I ask him if he's Q, he usually clears his throat heavily. <laughs> um, and I think in that moment, the real giveaway is that he starts laughing first because he knows that he just slipped up. Um, so to me, it's just really apparent that, uh, you know, that, 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 that he knew it and I knew it. Um, and even in, even in the, in the days that have passed since then, and since the, the progress has been released, it, it seems like he's, um, He's kind of leaning into it a bit now. So just to follow up on this, a couple of things. One is he he says there it was basically three years of intelligence training. As far as I can tell, he hasn't had any intelligence training at all, right? He doesn't come from the intelligence community. And this is part of the pushback I think you've gotten, which is that from some quarters that look um, – this could not have been, you know, a a marginal character like him starting this sort of national craze with all the trappings of insider intelligence information, which is why so many people have looked at Michael Flynn, as you did, or Steve Bannon, or people who were more uh, in the world of the intelligence community and, and, and better able to pass themselves off as a intelligence insider, which Ron is clearly not. Well, you have overlapping networks supporting Q. Uh, you know, so I'm saying that Ron is, is the linchpin in all of this, but the the material that Q was sharing, you didn't need to be some super top secret government insider to be able to do that. I mean, you just needed to be steeped in Chan culture and the theories that that people on the Chans already had been spinning for for years in some cases. And you you can watch. I mean, Q will sometimes ask the bakers. These are the guys who call the research, uh, the the best research on the Chans, like for better better research, basically. So what Q was really doing was just reflecting the theories back to the anons or the you know the people who are on the chans in the form of questions and uh and left it to the to all of these anons who were scouring the web for possible theories and he, he left it to them to basically do the work and then this was part of this sort of interactive game and interactive storytelling um that i think was so attractive to a lot of people um, so yeah, you didn't need to you didn't need to actually be doing any kind of intelligence training. Um, you just needed to know what the anons already knew and believed. Yet it did suck in a Michael Flynn, who you know famously gave the QAnon pledge. Well, absolutely. I mean, it it sucked in. I mean, Q, you you saw a lot of power players and political operatives gravitating towards Q very early on. Jerome Corsi was 
of course, I think the first one to openly serenade Q, you know, he's a, he's got a long history as a successful conspiracy theorist. Um, he is, he also has ties to Trump, his close buddies with Roger Stone. And he was, uh, you know, he was a correspondent, I guess, for uh, the Infowars at the time. Um, so he helped usher Q to the mainstream. And I think what you see in the series is that there are these overlapping networks that shared an interest in what Q was doing. So I think there was there was more there was a lot more communication happening behind the scenes between these overlapping networks um, in order to in order to bolster this. But when Q revved up at the very beginning, like no one no one in their right mind could say to themselves, "Oh, I'm going to create this gigantic, you know, global movement." You know, it started kind of organically. The first 127 posts that Q made were completely anonymous. Um, Q didn't start by calling itself Q. That didn't happen for, uh, you know, until like dozens of drops had already gone by. You know, so you can see it's kind of a work in progress as the story was building until somebody had dropped 128 locks it down with the trip code. And that just means that starting at drop 128 or the 128th post that at that point, you could actually confirm that Q was Q or that at least whoever owned the trip code uh, was the same person who was posting. There was no confirmation prior to that. And then after that, you start to see these other bigger fish gravitate towards the, the power that Q represented, trying to give it more steam. It's a little tricky to pinpoint exactly where characters like General Flynn or General Paul Vallely um, get involved. Um, we know that they were messaging QTubers behind the scenes through DMs in 2018. And it stands to reason that they would have been well aware that this campaign was was being run and that it was beneficial to them in some way. Um, and it's entirely plausible that that Ron Watkins and Jim Watkins had some kind of back channel um, to them um, during that during that time period. Um, you know, one of the things that Ron and Jim would often hint at was that Q was a marketing campaign that would end on the day of the election. So I want to follow up on something you said in your answer. You mentioned Q going mainstream, and I want to press you on that. Is Q really mainstream today? That you know, there's uh, there's a lot of evidence that the vast majority of Americans don't don't know what Q is or what QAnon is. Yet, you know, there's other evidence that as many as five percent of the American public, you know, kind of believe in QAnon and and Q. It's so is it is it mainstream? Is it something that is uh, that's still going on? Well, I mean, the majority of Americans have heard of QAnon. NPR did a, a study that said that 17% of Americans said they believed in the central tenets of QAnon and 54% weren't sure, um, including that 17%. So, uh, yeah, I would absolutely say that that, uh, that, that mainstream being um, awareness of, uh, of QAnon, um, but also even uh, belief in it. Uh, I think, yeah, I think you did go mainstream. Well, we got two members of Congress who are yeah. essentially yeah, we, Q believers, yeah. right? That's right. I mean, we had, we had, you know, in the primaries, nearly 100 people who were, you know, flashing their love for Q, uh, who, who uh, were running. And there's, there's been, you know, these numbers are debated, but at least 24 made it to, uh, made it to the, the ticket. Um, and then we had to actually make it to Congress. Um, you know, that to me indicates, you know, that it, that it went mainstream. Well, Colin, what about the Watkins? I mean, what do they believe? Uh, because I, I found myself if wondering. Anything. Right. No, exactly. <laughs> I found myself wondering point, yeah. throughout the, the, the series, um, are they political? Are they ideological? Do they believe in Q? I mean, they, you know, they talk about Trump, but there is this sense of 
Ron, on the one hand, being kind of amoral, Jim being uh, very sort of uh, cynical. And, and I wonder whether they're just kind of high on the power they have to, um, uh, to, to manipulate people into believing these things. Well, one of the things that Ron messaged me after the series dropped was that you know he he um, identifies more with villains. He one of the things he said he learned a long time ago is that uh, internet personalities are just actors on a stage. So I think that cue to him is just a hat he puts on, like the green hat. It's a character, and he separates himself from the character. But, you know, if you pretend to be something long enough, you eventually become that thing. So I'm not sure he even knows where where the line is between the character he's playing and what he actually believes. I, I got And I got to follow up by asking what it was like for you to be in such intense contact with these people for so long, uh, these people who are, you know, in some ways, the worst kinds of characters of the internet trolls uh people who i think i think it's your your language toward the end of the series saying who treat the world like a game i mean did you have to detox sometimes uh after spending so much time with these characters i mean you know it would be a week on week on week you know many many weeks off in between so it wasn't like i spent just a year straight with them or anything like that um i mean i guess you have to have a certain amount of detachment to do your work and also I was bouncing between sides that hate each other. Um, yeah. And I had to maintain a position of neutrality while at the same time um, trying to be upfront with everybody about what my intentions were. You know, so there was, they understood that I was trying to figure out who was behind Q. And I, I think they enjoyed the cat and mouse aspect of that. You know, once, once they threw out the ban and red herring, that actually provided me a bit of a shield too, because I could kind of lean into the ban and thing when I was with them. And, uh, and it allowed me to spend more time with them and pick around the edges, trying to get more evidence of their involvement. Yeah. Explain the ban and thing. Cause I got to say, you know, when I was watching, you almost half had me there that it might be Bannon. Well, well, Ron almost half had me. I mean, it was yeah. an incredibly compelling, incredibly compelling data set. You know, um, and I think this is also telling. The first time, the very first time I met Ron, um, at the end of the interview, he pulls me aside and he says, you know, you should look into Steve Bannon. He's like, I don't, th- I don't, I don't think that Steve Bannon is necessarily writing all of the draws. He probably has a team working for him. But you should look into Steve Bannon. Um, now, why would someone who is basically a real-life walking shitpost, you know, for whom the gold standard is trolling journalists, pull me aside and, and, and docs his most famous user. Right. And he would continue leaning into this, um, this belief, this, the second time I, I flew out to Japan to, to film with him and, uh, somebody who, uh, one of his associates showed me, you know, their chats and that back as far as January, early January of 2018, Ron believed that Steve Bannon was behind it. And then what you see in the series is where Ron says, let me show you the data. Here's the forensic trail that uh, you can pilot with me. And it was thousands of data points. It was incredibly compelling. I was looking at this data and going, my God, like either they, they painstakingly produced a fake data set in order to throw me off or the data set is real. Um, you know, and, and you'll hear in episode four, Ron say, you know, he's known it was banned. He's known it was banned from the beginning. 
Um, and you know, the, 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 then there was this forensic trail that, that did show that there were, you know, a camera had actually been in the area that Steve Bannon lives. There were photo, there was photographic evidence, the metadata lined up. So, um, you know, all of that was compelling. So either, um, he was telling the truth, um, and well, I guess there were a couple of options here, but you know, either the data set was fake or the data set was real, right? It has to be one of those two. And if it's real, what does that mean? And so that was what threw me off for a while. And I, you know, and I think that's why he showed it to me because he knew that I was, uh, you know, my focus would really narrowed in on him. Um, and so this was an opportunity to, to kind of, you know, throw me, throw me for a loop. Uh, and it worked for a while uh, until I was finally able to figure out what exactly had happened um, and that the data was real, but that almost certainly they had, they had created a fake forensic trail that made it look like it was Steve Bannon. And I think that he was a little disappointed, in fact, that no one had picked up on the idea that it was Steve Bannon after he put all of this hard work into creating this forensics trail. Um, so it was kind of like, you know, it was kind of you know, showing me the spoils because he was proud of the work, I think. So let's go back to the uh, uh, the Watkins because they obviously um, are are pushing back on the cl- on your claim, sure. and we actually have uh, a uh, pretty amusing excerpt from a live stream they did the other day, talking about your film. Um, you want to play it? I've never talked to Steve. I, I wrote him an email once, but he never replied, and then. Uh, I've tried to reach out to him a few times, but he never uh, he never talks to me, and uh, it's probably for the better. But I don't know for sure that he is Q, but uh, the signs really point toward it from what I was able to uh, see. Anyways, and uh, I, I know that Colin said it's a red herring, right? But yeah, uh, I think that's just an easy out for him because because Steve was avoiding him like the plague. Because <laughs> Colin and I were talking about it for for years, like uh, about it being Steve, and he uh, he was trying to meet Steve and get like a conversation or whatever with Steve, but nothing he did worked. So <clears throat> in the end, I, I think uh, the easy out for for Colin was to say Steve was a red herring and then just pin it all on me. Which uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not Q. I've never posted his Q, but watching, watching Colin's documentary, he's got me convinced. Yeah, I, if anybody could actually <laughs> be Q that I know, it would be Colin. Yeah. Oh, he has the wow. actual ability to do this, <laughs> and he has, he has the reason to do it too, because it's part of his documentary. He could have been what? leading everybody along just to make this documentary, and it's getting huge. Okay, Mr. Hoback, are you or are you not Q? <laughs> I am not Q. But <laughs> the these same guys... language. Wait, that's the same language that Ron Watkins uses. The very same <laughs> words. Uh, all right. Interesting. But, um, interesting. Okay. But <laughs> no, but you know, those it's funny because those guys like have been have been uh trying to I, this is not the first time I've heard them sort of try to try to spit it back uh, in my direction and, and make it seem like uh, like I like I was behind it. Um, you know, I think that that was something that they were they were they were planning on on spinning for a while. They've since backtracked on that claim. I, I don't know when that video was recorded, but they've they've moved away from from suggesting that 
that I'm right. Q. Right. But um, but it would be a, it would be a clever idea, you know. So, uh, <laughs> I wish I was that clever to you know come up with like a whole thing and then you're oh you investigate yourself that'd be a hell of a thing. But um, also I would I would kind of hate myself uh, incredibly if I had done something like that uh, and 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 led the world uh, in this direction. Uh, I, I hope that that's something that I would not be capable of doing. And uh, where are the Watkinses now? Uh, what's next for them? Well, I don't know. Um, I think that Ron is working on a social network. Um, Jim's got, uh, you know, they're doing their their shows daily, like the one that you just played. <laughs> so or every other day. I don't know how often they're doing them right now, you know. So that, that's that's what they're up to. I don't I don't know what the you know the fallout of this project will 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 potentially mean, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I did they say on their show what they're what they're up to? I mean. They've always got a lot of a lot of. They're always cooking up a lot of different things. So, um, yeah, I don't I don't know what's I don't know what's next for them. The the kind of driving theme or one of the driving themes in this series um, is this idea that what happens on the internet, which sometimes doesn't feel real, does have real world consequences. And part of the reason that the finale with what happened on January sixth is so powerful. This is a realization that Frederick Brennan comes to um, over time, I think started with uh, uh, the Christchurch uh, massacre. Um, and then at some point he says he didn't really see 8chan stuff affecting the real world, but it is the real world. I, I don't know whether the Watkins see it, but if they do, they don't care. But when you you know worked on this documentary for, for three years, you were obviously – thinking about this issue, where are we in terms of, um, you know, people understanding the real world effects of what goes on on the internet? And, and what do you think needs to be done about it? I mean, I know that's a kind of a cosmic question, um, but it seems like a question of our time um, that's hugely important. It is hugely important. So the first, the first bit, I think, what you're referring to is something that's often called meme magic, which is memeing something into existence. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's taking something which is not true and, and kind of making it become true. Um, and I think that that's what we saw happen with QAnon. You know, I think a lot of people were sort of one foot in, one foot out in the beginning. And over time, they started to really believe it. Um, and then what we saw in the run up to January 6th was this sort of confluence of actors all trying to make you know, the, the narrative that Hugh had been spinning um, real across the proverbial Rubicon, as Ron put it right before the sixth. And, you know, so you can see how something that can start as a, as a joke can have very real world consequences, uh, serious real world consequences. Now, a lot of people think that are, are talking right now, I think about the speech, um, the content and, and suggesting that the way to tackle something like Q is to suppress the conversation around it. And I, I fear, and what, 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 it sound, what it reminds me a lot of right now is the same conversation I heard after 9-11. You know, after 9-11, we were, we were told we needed to sacrifice privacy in order to combat terrorism. And now it really feels like we're being asked to sacrifice free speech in order to combat extremism. And you know, Silicon Valley uh, is basically saying, look, like, uh, you know, th these algorithms that caused this, that I think largely drove us to this place, um, can now be the solution, you know, the algorithms, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. 
right? And so I would say rather than looking at the content itself, we should look at look at how we got here and look at the underlying technology of big tech. You know, because these forums like HN, they've been around for decades. That's they're not what's new. What's new is the algorithms and the total lack of privacy. Right. And as you pointed out, it was the it was the actually the the recommendation algorithms that had such a terrible impact. I think um, wasn't it YouTube that uh, was more consequential in terms of Christchurch? I think you That's said right. That. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The Christchurch report found that uh, the the shooter had been radicalized on on YouTube, um, and that was years before that that even happened. Um, so yeah, I mean, you've got algorithms whose only goal is really keeping our attention, and now you know, big tech is basically saying, oh, these out, al- you know, let's let's use more algorithms to monitor speech and and decide what should be allowed and what should not be allowed, rather than saying, oh, well, maybe we should reconsider the business model itself, uh, which is these algorithms and which is the extraction of our personal data. You know, if if our data hadn't been uh, cold and harvested and thousands of data points collected on each of us, generating these psychometric pro- profiles, we wouldn't have been manipulated, driven into echo chambers. We wouldn't, we wouldn't probably even be having this conversation. And, and I think a lot of the extreme speech we see online right now is a byproduct of that manipulation. So I would start by restoring rights rather than taking more away in order to deal with something like this. Um, related final question, uh, which is, what does it say about our country that millions of Americans actually believed this stuff, that you know, a secret cabal of pedophiles and Satan worshipers were running the United States government. It's all seems so nonsensical on its face. And yet, regardless of who Q is, the reason we're talking about it is because millions of people actually believe this stuff. Well, I think that, you know, why do people believe in something like QAnon? I mean, why do people believe in religion? Um, you know, there's a lot of religious beliefs that are that I think are pretty wild. <laughs> you know, that, that that people are willing to entertain, and and I think that QAnon speaks to to a similar a similar need. But also, our, our society kind of lacks a cohesive narrative right now, and we've had decades of the income gap is wider than it's been in, in however long. Um, you know, there's lead in the drinking water, banking crisis, uh, WMIDs that led to a multi-trillion dollar war. I mean, people, when they feel like the elites aren't treating them well, they, they look to other sources, sometimes far less reputable sources. Um, but, the, you know, this sort of radical rejection of expertise, I think, is a byproduct of a distrust which has um, emerged in relationship to a lot of these institutions. And I think these institutions need to earn back some of that trust. So, you know, there's, it's a mixture of, it's like a conflict of sort of a perfect storm of problems where, you know, you, you, you've got people looking, uh, trying to explain the evils that they sense in the world um, with a very sort of simple solution. And that, that's what QAnon provides. It, it, it's a false solution, but it, it puts things in black and white, concrete, good versus evil terms. It says heaven and hell is right here on earth. Uh, no, and by the way, uh, you can you can participate by solving riddles in order to figure out what's secretly really going on, versus the truth, which is that the banality of evil isn't sexy 
It's complex, super hard to understand. Like I, I watched the big short five times and I still don't fully understand what happened with the banking crisis. Uh, you know, so, you know, it's, it's so that it's, it's easier just to pick bad guys and, and say that they eat babies than, than to try to parse out, uh, you know, the, the mechanics that I think make it difficult for someone to say buy a house right now. Right. Well, look, uh, uh, evil may be uh, banal, but um, watching your your documentary was endlessly entertaining. Um, and uh, so well, congratulations on it. And uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah, that's great. All right. Thanks for having me. 